I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Jeff Sievers. And in Canada, we call it the Great Convexity here in the Great Concavity. Concavity. <laughs> Concavity. Concavity. Convexity. Throw some waste on your side of the border. Yeah, it's looking more and more likely like that the geopolitical situation will develop, right? Isn't it though? Yeah. <laughs> well, in some way, in border some protection. Way. Yeah. Uh, that's true. <laughs> so our guest tonight is uh, Jeff Sievers. Yeah, we got Jeff Sievers on Jeff episode Sievers. 26 of The Great Concavity. And in case you guys somehow missed it, this is a podcast about David Foster Wallace. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming on. You are a you're you're I counted you're the fourth recurring guest on our show. So no, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> um, and good to know I'm recurring. It's like a uh, recurring uh, guest star on the old TV shows or something. Joan maybe. Rivers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. right. Yeah. So we we had a chance. Jeff to... Severs as himself, sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we briefly caught up with you at the ISU conference and had about a ten minute. Uh, interview for episode 17.1, uh, which I just listened back to uh, earlier today, just to just to refresh. And here we get to have you for an entire episode, which is fantastic because you have a new book that has recently come out called David Foster Wallace's Balancing Books, Fictions of Value, out now from Columbia University Press. And we're very excited to talk to you about the contents of this book. And um, also, too, we want to mention that you are the Associate Professor of English at UBC in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Mm-hmm. And we did mention that you are, you are an American, but you've lived in Canada for about seven or eight years now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, since 2009, that's when I moved here. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you teach uh, modern fiction studies and, and uh, uh, literature at UBC in Vancouver. And um, well, again, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks. Yeah. And I got to say, Jeff is also a former Austinite. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had a couple of stints in Austin, um, 2001 to 2004, and then 08, 09. So, yeah, Matt and I, and Matt and I recently met up in Austin for the first right. time, which was cool. Yeah. And, um, I was, Jeff is, a, a, I, I believe, a graduate of the prestigious Michener Center. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they you know, make you put prestigious in front of it, right? Uh, it's gotten more prestigious since I was there. I don't think I would get in now, given all the um, writers who have come out of there, like uh, Kevin Powers and uh, Philip Meyer and all those guys. So, um, but yeah, I was there. Uh, that was my first stint in Austin. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal in Austin, and that's it you is, know, if, yeah. you, if you're going to get an MFA, I think in Texas, that's the place to do it, and. Um, did you see uh, Magnuson, the director, just recently stepped down? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, I, I, um, I think he is. This is is he sort of officially retired yeah. now, or is this his last semester? This I was, is, this I was is his last semester. His last yeah. semester. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jim's a great teacher and great friend, and and uh, I mean, he's really done a whole lot with that program and i mean that that success i was talking about is is really uh mainly due to him and and uh you know he's had a nice endowment 
from James Mission to work with there, which I'm sure has helped, but, um, it's, uh, he's a really, you know, great teacher and, and good guy. So. No, he's in the only director, really, the Institute has known. And right. the the whole program, I think, is owes him a lot. And he's a really interesting writer. He's got a, a great kind of Ramona Clef called Famous Writers I Have Known, which is sort of about Austin. Yeah, hmm. yeah he, was, um, he was working on that when I was a student there and then for many years after. And he would tell us occasionally about, you know, putting in little jokes about current and former students, you know, with names and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, um, uh, I, be, I mean, I, since we're talking about Wallace, I suppose the, you know, the, the, a program like the Mission Center maybe, uh, is, uh, seemed far better than, uh, what, uh, you know, Wallace's commentary about, uh, Arizona and, uh, MFA <laughs> programs in general sort of, uh, right, yeah suggest or prepared me for or something like that yeah well in yeah. the, the, the dt max book will tell you that you know wallace got into the mfa program at um princeton uh um is that right oh really is uh, it, I, he, did he get into well, no johns hopkins johns hopkins right yeah and yeah. he did not he get did, into did iowa not. He did not right. get into Iowa, but he got into Johns Hopkins, which is where John Barth is. But he really went to um, Arizona, you know, partly because of his his um, I don't know relationship or mentorship with um, you know his mentor at the time, um, and you know that, that's interesting. He could have it could, very easily. He could have been a if he had gone to school with John Barth, then like. Oh, a student uh, of John Barth, right? Yeah, right. and I guess he sort of imagined what that would have been like in Westward, the Course of Empire, right? Um, maybe. A, maybe he, I, there's he, a lot he, of that, right? Like, I mean, yeah. Well, it's it, it, is it you know the the thing about Iowa reminds me that um, his kind of takedown of of Conroy in uh, in the cruise ship essay, uh, I feel like uh, someone has claimed or suggested maybe it's in Max's biography that that was a sort of um, you know uh, the fact that he hadn't uh, gotten uh, in gotten into <laughs> Iowa was behind that right yeah um, which is uh, you know a funny little active uh, vengeance i guess <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's step back and, and talk about your book a little bit because yeah. you know the dave jump in here at any point but i you know i was impressed with your book and that ostensibly it's about money and finance and economy and taxes and class and all, all kinds Civic of other things values. right yeah. but eventually it's really kind of like an overview of his work i mean how would you yeah. describe your your take on the, on the book, the balancing books. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, um, let's see. I mean, it definitely, you know, I started really working on it in earnest in 2013 when, um, I wanted to be, and I'm more, you know, I, I mean, my book is coming out at the same time as, uh, right around the same time as, as some other books that give a kind of full overview of the career. But when I started it, right, the, the kind of, um, what I was working, the major kind of works of recent criticism had all been in these edited collection forms, uh, like the, 
Lee Constantino's yeah. and Sam Cohen's um, mm-hmm. legacy book, Legacy of David Foster Wallace, and then the uh, companion yes. of, that uh, Stephen Byrne and Marshall Boswell did. So um, I definitely, you know, thought of thought of uh, the kind of uh, book filling a, a need or a niche to give a um, of giving a, a sort of overview of of the career and the the you know the the finance theme. Um, uh, certainly, you know, took on is quite prominent uh, in the book, um, but it really I, that was a sort of second or third step in the kind of genesis of it. I mean, I really started by wanting to write about balance in the sense that uh, it seemed, you know, Wallace was kind of constantly writing about it. That is just the act of standing up and having uh, your feet on the ground and balancing in this, uh, you know, also in the kind of cosmic sense of the yin-yang, which was a big uh, symbol throughout his career for him and that sense of it from Taoism. And so then the, I kind of, um, I mean, I, I, I also knew along with that, that he was constantly writing about value um, in a in all sorts of senses and trying to you know sort of compare monetary value to moral and metaphysical and um, mathematical value and sort of in in the process kind of uh, demoting economic value from its kind of first place in most people's minds and then I kind of um, figured out um, how to connect really the central systems of meaning by thinking of how value was essentially always about axiom and axiology and uh, foundation, uh, foundations to philosophical systems. And uh, that was innately connected to the kind of uh, image, you know, system of what um, well, what we stand on. Um, there's the young tennis player in Infinite Jest who says something like, uh, when they're talking about the rankings, he says, I know where I stand or I know where I stand at all times. And that seemed to me to be the kind of a little sort of in-joke in a sense uh, of that text about you don't know that, especially if you are um, you know, one of these young tennis players who is kind of constantly being scrutinized in terms of... Um, uh, you know, the valuation of your point scoring within tennis and, and such. So, yeah, those are some of the things that kind of drove, uh, drove me to the, to where I got with the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that word axiology, uh, comes up quite a lot in your book and, and could you unpack that term for, for listeners who may not be familiar with it? This is a word <laughs> I used a fair bit in my thesis as well too. And so we had some conversation about that. Because you're my external reviewer, we mentioned. Yeah, I, I read Dave's thesis, and and I remember seeing him use it in a um, uh, Dave use it in a, in a theological context, which isn't a context that I, um, which is an important one, but not one that I really dealt with uh, in the book. And so, uh, in a way, there's you know the, a kind of dialogue between our projects to be had mm-hmm. down the line yeah. when you when you publish parts of that and stuff. So. Um, Yeah. uh, So I sort of came upon axiology. It's one of the words that Wallace, uh, you know, comes from his dictionary notes, um, which are reprinted in part right in both flesh and not in the in the interpages between. And so that that's really where I 
became aware of axiology as a field. It's the it's defined in his dictionary notes as uh, the philosophy of value and value judgments. Right. Um, and so um, uh, I, I kind of, as I was constructing the book and especially the introduction, um, I wanted to. Uh, you know, have a, a central term like that for kind of characterizing um, the field into which his writing and fiction fell. Um, and I, so I think, um, uh, well, let's see how to, how to, uh, what to say about this. I mean, axiology um, goes back to um, the Greek sense of axios or the worthy or the thing uh, it, it describes what is worthy or what is of weight. Uh, and, and so um, uh, I quote from, uh, you know, an essay on uh, by um, uh, a quote from Heidegger in the, in the introduction to the book uh, defining axiology and the, and axios as something that uh, is interested in, uh, things that, uh, stand out as worthy or have value of themselves. And, and I think Wallace was kind of interested in using that, um, idea that there are, uh, axiomatic, uh, values, uh, to kind of contend with this whole inheritance he had from Wittgenstein and logical positivism, which would say that, um, value statements or value judgments are things that would be uh, excluded from uh, or uh, distinguished from fact statements, empirical uh, statements within language. And so I think the, the, in a way, I don't think Wallace is, you know, I don't think he's a Wittgensteinian when it comes to this. I don't think he's a Heideggerian. I think he is being truthful when he says, uh, uh, I think in an interview somewhere that he hopes that his fiction is not taken as philosophy or he thinks, you know, he thought he would have failed as a writer if he had uh, merely been a kind of philosopher writer. Um, but I think he finds a kind of way of uh, sort of continually sort of probing uh, this kind of question of axiology and the axiomatic uh uh, you know, in all sorts of different, uh, you know, images. And, and he was right, really a, a kind of writer who was always seeking, I think, kind of physical, concrete uh, images for these more uh, what, you know, in another writer are sort of just metaphysical abstractions or something like that. Um, so you get something like the, you know, instead of, um, well, the wheelchair assassins are pretty good. Uh, kind of indicate or example of that in that, you know, a lot of people would say, well, this is a kind of terrible, um, terribly unrealistic or off-putting <laughs> kind of uh, uh, set of characters to put at the center of a, of a novel. And yet they speak very well to this kind of desire that I think is very much derived from Kafka to, to always, you know, embody and make, uh, physical, the, the sort of metaphysical states of nihilism or beliefless or, um, you know, uh, kind of ironic detachments from, um, 
well from anything being axiomatic really <laughs> hmm. well, it's funny that you've mentioned that that his interest in not being a philosophical writer it seems somewhat disingenuous to me and, <laughs> yeah that's and, true and, and that's true yeah and, yeah there's some disingenuousness i mean especially because his father was a philosopher right yeah and, yeah. and his father was of the sort of ethical value you yeah. know western tradition philosopher where he wrote about you know spinoza and deleuze and hegel and was very much in lines with that idea about axiology whereas wallace's earlier writings you know as an undergrad were very much not in that tradition about you know the the analytical wittgensteinian and you know mm. popper traditions so it it seems to me that there is some like automatic conflict there right where he's able to use fiction in service of sort of hiding his interest in value i mean do you think that's true or hiding his interest in value well i mean i i think there's um you know i think the the kind of young man who's clearly kind of brilliant in a, in a variety of fields in, in philosophy, fiction writing, and then economics, which, you know, mm -hmm. which was a big field at Amherst for him in the earlier days before those kind of senior theses. And I kind of make, make something of sort of seeing him as a, as almost a kind of tripartite writer, you know, who is really adept at philosophy, writes this great, you know, first novel as creative as a creative writing thesis, but also had economics in the background. But I mean, the, the, what I was going to say is that, um, you know, there's something simultaneously uh, Oedipal about his desire to kind of um, use fiction as a means of sort of doing something other than his father, right. To kind of rebel against right. um, <laughs> the path that had been, uh, laid down for him and that, you know, there's evidence that he, uh, participated in the kind of composition of his father's work, right. Uh, serving as a, a kind of reader and, and copy editor and such. Um, but at the same time, you know, within, we all know that Wallace had this kind of, um, uh, well, he had a strong sense of, of sort of, uh, well, propriety, um, duty, uh, and a, a sense that, you know, he was in being, um, you know, polite and Midwestern and all those things that were perhaps, you know, performances at times, but also a part of his being that he, he wanted to do kind of real sort of, uh, solid, uh, important work. I mean, DT Max, um, uh, DT Max talks about him being, um, you know, having the childhood aspiration of being a, an Illinois congressman, right? And, and I, in the book, I, I sort of, uh, you know, think a lot about how the fiction was, as, you know, um, Matt was suggesting, definitely a way of being philosophical while simultaneously being not dry at all and being entertaining and being funny um, and being, you know, uh, passionately moral, et cetera. But, um, 
you know, at the same time, there was a kind of anxiety about whether fiction was a was a job in the sense that, you know, um, being a lawyer or being a politician or a congressperson or an economist or 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 a philosophy professor was uh, a job. And I think that's where this kind of, you know, especially later career obsession with writing about regular people with regular jobs. In fact, the most boring jobs possible in, in tax accounting where that kind of comes comes from. Um, but I didn't really answer any part of the question about uh, this having to do with the hiding of, of value. Um, no, 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 yeah. it's fine. I, and, and, you know, related to that, uh, I, you know, I wanted to ask because, you know, you mentioned his Amherst years there and you do start out your book. It's very like chronological. So like where was that? Yeah. Did that seem natural to you? Like with the the idea of, you know, money and finance or was it something that you kind of discovered later? You mean that the chronological chronologically? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's. You know, I, I make a little bit in the book of Broom of the System being in part, um, I, I think Patrick O'Donnell calls it uh, this, he has this phrase for it, he calls it an irresolute bildungsroman and that, you know, it's kind of uh, partial in many, it's a partial book in, in so many ways and that it, and it's concerned with part whole relationships uh, too. But um, I think there's a way in which uh, Lenore, Right is trying to figure out um, well how to be and how to be a a, a, a a worker in the world, and she has this job that is low wage, right? Um, and uh, that's uh, and beneath her skill set, you know, that she has this kind of uh, philosophical knowledge that um, isn't being put to kind of obvious use in her life. And that's in contrast, right, to uh, Andrew Lang, Wang Dang Lang, being the <laughs> economics major at, at Amherst, which isn't a kind of like super prominent part of the of the book. But I think there's a way in which the, the way I read um, those elements um, and uh, and Lang's, uh, you know, kind of entry into the book as somebody who just grows disillusioned with his marriage and disillusioned with his, um, you know, finance-oriented career. Um, there's a kind of, uh, you know, there's a kind of address. I think there's a. I have a sense that Wallace sort of came out of, you know, Amherst, uh, contemplating a philosophy career, contemplating a fiction career, but also probably thinking about all those people he graduated with who went into business and finance and who made money, which is what people who graduate from Amherst and colleges like that go do, you know, um, in, uh, in many respects. And he had that kind of, I think, um, ability. Um, I'm not suggesting that he wanted to secretly to be a stockbroker or something like that, <laughs> but but I think there was a kind of uh, there is a kind of effort to, um, you know, define um, well, define himself in in relation to that as career choice. But then, of course, more frontally in the broom of the system, define him his work uh, and his kind of moral philosophy uh, against a kind of uh, '80s Reaganite capitalism gone. Berserk, you know. I mean, Norman Bombardini being the kind of uh, great uh, emblem of that, right? Yes. Consumer, 
consumer capitalism that no longer um, no longer produces anything and is is kind of driven mad by this this uh, consumption oriented uh, ethic or or a kind of uh, uh, it, it, driven mad by the idea that uh, that, uh, that the U.S. is a service economy, a consumer economy, and that kind of uh, buying things and consuming them is is the kind of major economic function of so many Americans in a way. <laughs> uh, um, I loved your uh, your quote on page forty six where you're talking about Norman Bombardini. You say that Bombardini suggests language is powered by food or is food itself in a travesty of biblical wisdom about not living on bread alone. <laughs> yeah, a yeah. Delicious I mean, I, series of thoughts, he says, <laughs> announcing his eat everything plan. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there's, I mean, I think Wallace was kind of really deep into that idea that language was something that uh, could be converted in uh, in the imagination of a kind of capitalist figure like Bombardini or in the imagination of Hal eventually, right? Hal sort of is um, a great, uh, he digests dictionary, he digests right, everything yeah. he reads. He's a, he's a, a vacuum cleaner. I mean, consumes, one of the, yeah. he consumes it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, uh, you know, that, that the reading of the dictionary, the memorization of the dictionary is a, is a kind of consumption. And I think, uh, yeah, there, there was a kind of, uh, desire within Wallace, um, that I read about, uh, quite a bit in the book to, to sort of, suggests the ways in which uh, all the ways in which language uh, is not a consumable object it is not a possessable object it and it forms a kind of um, you know I think that all his bombardini is is not only a big eater of steaks but he's a great monologuer right he's a kind of hideous man because he yeah. like Rick vigorous too just um, talks as and i say this as i go on monologuing myself here or dialogue. <laughs> yeah. no i mean it, when you think about uh doing an interview about david foster wallace you realize that uh, he was a kind of great um critic of the interview form right? yeah. <laughs> and how it turns into this kind of monologuing although you your guys's uh Cues are not uh, left to ellipses or anything. Well, you know that that is more that, conversational than well, not. Yeah. Well, I mean that brings up an interesting point, which I, I think in your book, what I you know one thing I really liked about your approach is that you you know you don't shy away from like biographical approach either, mm-hmm. and you know even though you kind of move um, chronologically through his writing, um, you know you're very much willing to embrace um, the biographical details of his life, which I, I think are super interesting. And that's what keeps a lot of readers interested. Yeah. And um, I mean, can you speak a little bit to that in terms of like how you see, I don't know, literary criticism or just, you know, the value of what you're trying to do there? Yeah. Um, it's a good point. I mean, I think I am, and maybe this goes back to being somebody who got a, got an MFA in addition to a PhD. I I've, 
I've wanted in general in my work um, to, I think, write uh, a kind of criticism that while avoiding, you know, what we all know to be a kind of biographical or autobiographical fallacy uh, or intentional fallacy and, right. and in assessing writers to still um, look to um, look for that kind of level of a text that, I mean, at least in, in this case, you know, what, what kind of sustained me in the, in the writing of the book was a sense that um, to me, nearly every, you know, so many narratives that Wallace created were constructed around these kind of ideas of, um, you know, finding a, a sort of image of balance and ground and groundlessness and uh, or the face in the floor or all these all these sort of, um, um, you know, uh, things that I make circulate around this kind of central image of balance, balance and, and, and ground in the book. Um that I think the, you know, I think good criticism for me, especially for a writer who is in the kind of, relatively speaking, infancy period of his critical uh, life, you know, that this is a, a kind of early moment in which to intervene. Um, I wanted to, in general, put, uh, you know, I, I thought there was a kind of rhetorical level of Wallace so clearly interested in these issues of sincere expression and irony and addiction that are on the surface of the book, but the books are very long and dense and have all these other scenes and images that people, you know, don't write about or didn't write about. Um, and I'd hope to, to kind of bring that up. And I think what that brings with it is, is almost a kind of biographical approach that, yeah, does, um, does honor a kind of sense that, you know, he had a, uh, uh, a sense that each book, um, well, responded in some way to the previous books, you know, and he was, of course, a writer who thought quite a bit about being, you know, David Foster Wallace, the author of The Broom of the System, that a book that he had to uh, somehow refute or improve upon um, as he he built uh, uh, his career. The other thing I wanted to say about your question is that, you know, the funny thing about Wallace and biography to me is that... Um, and there are certain parallels. Well, um, I, no, I mean, I was going to bring up Thomas Pynchon as a, as a kind of parallel figure um, in this regard. But, you know, when I for in the first uh, 10 or 15 years, I was reading Wallace from the kind of or, you know, mid nineties till, um, uh, you know, well into the two thousands, I, um, you know, if you had told me that he was really writing about, um, you know, personal experience, say in, um, you know, in, in, in kind of, um, the way in which, uh, his, uh, you know, uh, infinite jest is dedicated right to the, um, ironically dedicated to the memory of his, uh, maternal grandfather, F. right. FP Foster. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if you had, um, and, and, you know, I think, even without all the material that that DT Max uncovers in the biography and and other and others have unearthed and and kind of 
um, reading him, uh, you know, especially since his death. I think there's just a weird way in which he found a kind of incredibly wacky, esoteric, oblique way of writing about, uh, you know, uh, his autobiography in ways that we just that no one would recognize right uh in, in the initial reception uh of his work i don't know i think i i'll have to think for a minute of maybe and maybe i'll come up with later on some better examples of this than than just that um you know uh, fp foster um dedication but um, yeah. Well, yeah. well, what you mentioned earlier, though, about like you going to an MFA program. I mean, Wallace went to an MFA program, but he very much did never really associate himself with being like a professor, right? And like, yeah. con- conduct- but he was a great teacher, right? You he, know, he was yeah. a great teacher, but he really sort of dressed the part of like a student more than a teacher. Yeah. Do, you, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. you, you talk a lot about class in the book, and like, I think this is a really key issue. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear you know your take on how wallace presented himself not just as like a writer but as like you know part of the community yeah and i mean i think you're you're sort of uh bringing up the kind of aspect of him that was this incredibly well educated um intellectual figure who you know i I think there was a pose right in in wearing the bandana and wearing work work boots and mm-hmm. and dressing like a schlub and and all those things right which which some people might attribute to a kind of um you know him being within a sort of grunge aesthetic or something i mean that's a mm-hmm. I, I don't really i've never really bought the idea that wallace is expressive of the grunge moment in any way or uh, anything yeah. like that but um i guess that yeah there's a there's a kind of um class you know um I think there is, uh, yeah, a strong. Um, well, for one thing, there's a there's a kind of strong interest, you know, eventually in his career of of really thinking about the working class um, and uh, you know, uh, as, in in a sort of literal sense of what do people do for work? What is productive about their work, what is necessary about their work, um, and what what does it mean to live in a society um, that is, for the most part, you know, uh, made wealthy um, by um, financial capital, right? F- uh, made wealthy by a kind of value earning that isn't dependent on uh, production <laughs> isn't dependent on uh, work, uh, in, 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 and I think he 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 wanted to sort of like continually kind of, um, in a way, juxtapose you know uh, hard labor, which was always a kind of image of what the reader was going to do and what he had done in in making the book, um, with you know a, a sort of dissolute consumer consumerist um society that didn't know where its value uh kind of came from um but on the yeah on the level of biography i mean i think the you know for him the tension was uh he's the guy from illinois who is a kind of expert on illinois and will uh, and rural life who writes about um you know uh the illinois uh, state fair and the in in uh his you know 
uh, one of his first pieces for Harper's. And, um, you know, I think enacting on a kind of continuous basis uh, this identity of being the guy who doesn't belong in the New York literary scene uh, was a, a, a powerful kind of uh, engine for his work. I mean, I think of like Skip Atwater in the, um, you know, in the suffering channel, the suffering, suffering channel, channel, right? Yeah. Being this, uh, you know, clearly a kind of image of Wallace as journalist, but he, he also, uh, I mean, he very much transcends that. I think, uh, uh, that simple identification is character, but right. What is, what Atwater does is he, he doesn't fit the kind of profile of somebody working at, this glossy style magazine. Um, he uh, is somebody who goes out to the Midwest. Uh, it's Indiana in the in the story, but it might as well be you know going back to the native Illinois and finds the kind of uh, story of miraculous. <laughs> miraculous poo, but also miraculous kind of energy <laughs> production, as I suggest in the uh, in the book, and finds a kind of uh, you know a, a figure um, that um, doesn't uh, sort of fit or belong on the pages of of style, and yet uh, there's a kind of effort to you know uh, make him uh, to, to to put him in the in the magazine, put him uh, on. Uh, display and I, I just think uh, you know Wallace kind of had this sense, and it comes out in the nine eleven essay, the view from Mrs. Thompson's too, that mm-hmm. that he was uh, living, he was conversant in sort of at least two Americas, right? He was conversant in uh, Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, uh, but he also knew knew New York, and he could kind of you know use his writing to sort of make uh, make the two. Um, the two identities talk to one another. And I think very much, you know, they, there is kind of class, there's a definite class distinction between, you know, the people he kind of knew in New York who had their fabulous New York lives or East coast lives. And then the people that he, you know, frankly, obviously felt more comfortable around the, mm-hmm. you know, the people of, of Bloomington, et cetera. And then, yeah. you know, the, the fact that they didn't take him as celebrity, uh, of course is tied up with all that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting, Matt, because I, I don't think of the book as being my book as being fundamentally about class, but I I think it's it's uh, it's definitely there, and and it's a kind of untapped area too of, of like studying infinite jest. If you think there's a kind of um, you know there's there's a sort of uh, there's definitely a kind of uh, juxtaposition of the the privileged tennis kids for the most part, you know, and mm-hmm. and the, the down down the hill. Down, uh, yeah, the, the people, yeah. people of Ennett House, uh, mm-hmm. that's a kind of key, you know, that's sort of, I think, him sort of saying, well, to write an American novel, a great American novel, you need to, you need uh, people of different uh, class positions and such. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. This is interesting. It makes me think a lot of, um, you know, if, if Wallace were still alive and writing today in our current political moment, uh, this this issue of class and economics that's so prominent in your book. I wonder, like Jeff, have you thought much about the kinds of things Wallace would be writing about right now in relation to into Republicans winning the election <laughs> and the absurdity of Donald Trump and all that? Like what like what kind of pieces do you think we'd have coming from Wallace at this time? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, he, I think he definitely understood economics and economy and, yeah. but I also think he was interested in, um, what I guess you'd call political economy, right? The, mm-hmm. the kind of sense of, and, and I write a lot in the book about him being, um, anti-neoliberal or, or a kind of great critic of neoliberalism as a, right. as a basic philosophy. I don't think he would have, um, kind of thought of his project in those terms, but it, you know, the, the kind of critical conversation that I wanted the book to join is definitely one where a kind of sense that, um, uh, perhaps especially in the post postmodern uh, moment that addri- you know uh, that a lot of writers are addressing themselves to this kind of question of of uh, neoliberalism's effects on um, you know certainly uh, economy and and life under capitalism, but also the kind of deep almost emotional uh, impact that living in a, a sort of competitive economy um uh has uh what would wallace be writing about well i say at a couple points things like um you know as you as you know right when he uh was at the end of near the end of his life he he was um had agreed to write this piece for gq um, about Obama in, in 2008. Um, and he, but he had to cancel on going to the democratic convention in, um, in Denver. And I think of, you know, I, it seems pretty clear that GQ would have thought of this as like almost a kind of, um, follow up, uh, in some ways to the McCain piece mm-hmm. of right. eight years earlier, right. That had, it was, quite prominent, uh, as you know, journalistic takes on politicians by literary writers. <laughs> yeah, totally. Go, uh, go. And, and so I, I kind of imagine just briefly in the book that what he would have, um, you know, taken out of that Obama profile. I think he, you know, health insurance is a kind of part of neoliberal political economy that right, yeah. I think he was, um, uh, quite keen on, I sort of do an extended reading of the story Oblivion uh, right. in, in those terms, and I think he was quite interested in that. I mean, there's also the fact that um, as I write a bit about and as uh, Richard Godden and Michael Soleil have a long uh, article uh, about this that starts uh, in on this, uh, starts from this, this um, you know, juxtaposition that, that you have to kind of acknowledge that he committed suicide right as um, the financial crisis was really going into meltdown mode, you know, in September 2008. And I think it's wrong to see any sort of um, really symbolism uh, in that, um, you know, because his death is his death and, and should be treated in its own terms, but it's pretty clear that, um, you know, he would have, I think, I think there's a lot in his work, uh, that is in some ways predictive of the 2008 meltdown (laughs) in that he, you know, I think he instinctively understood uh, and, and deeply understood, um, that financialization, uh, was, was bad news uh, on many 
levels, you know, and, and, uh, adult world and, and the kind of image of being a stochastic currency trader is the kind of best example of that. But, um, you know, that, that, that same week though, I got to say that there was another theory, you know, that came out was that was the one week in the campaign after the Republican national convention, 2008, where, um, you know, McCain's polls went up and Obama was actually down and, Mm -hmm. and, I think it is false to draw any side of like conclusions in that, but I, you know, I do think it's interesting to say that the financial industry has not really recovered from that, you know, or <laughs> or is planning on a, a, a newer, bigger apocalypse in some way. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, way. well, I mean, and there was a lot of political reforms based on that crash, right? Like that was probably yeah. the biggest um, financial meltdown of my lifetime mm-hmm. and yeah, that right. the United States economy and political economy really hasn't fully adapted. You know, I mean, Trump's one of his like core tenets is that he's going to repeal Dodd-Frank, which is a lot of the protections that were put in place after 2008. And I, I think it's really interesting that Wallace was in touch with that, with McCain and with his, um, you know, interviews through 2004 and, you know, your willingness to sort of engage with that level of um, economy. I think, you know, it makes your argument stronger and that, you know, Wallace was engaged with like the times that he was living in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can, can you talk a little bit about like the pale King? Because that plays a big role yeah. in your book. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think he. Um, um, you know, I, I think we nobody can read the the, the work um, in general after the McCain essay, pretty much from two thousand forward, and not see that he was so very interested, right, in civic values and, and, uh, instilling them and talking about their erosion. And I think there's, you know, in in a certain sense, I think there's a kind of, um, well, there's a level of Wallace that has a a certain kind of, um, to go to the pale King, right. The, 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 the first, the uh, opening scene that Michael Peach put first has that line: "We are all of us brothers," and and um, I think that's a kind of um, yeah. you know a kind of single sentence distillation of the vision that Wallace wanted um, out of that novel and really out of the late work. But I also think he, you know, part of what I hope my readings uncover is that there's a lot of like detail work, you know, behind that, uh, kind of, uh, uh, sentiment, which, you know, is a kind of, um, uh, a sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of fantasy, right. I mean, down to the fact, uh, you know, including the fact that one thing, when I teach that scene, I, I sort of, you know, have asked, uh, grad students before, like, well, what do we think about the fact that it, the line is, you know, the line sounds good because it's, we are, we are all of us brothers, but why doesn't it say we are all of us brothers and sisters? You know, for one thing, it's, it's a, it's a gendered um, vision of, of togetherness and community and, uh, and those sorts of themes. I mean, I think the, the pale King is, um, yeah, obviously uh, has a strong sense that in order to achieve 
anything like the sort of civic uh, vision that Wallace had or or a kind of, um, you know, sense that uh, this is water has of, you know, if you look at other people, you'll find that uh, in the grocery line, you know, you'll find a kind of sacred fire uh, there. And, you know, he, he obviously had this strong sense that he he was sort of preaching this kind of idea of civics and community and, and connection um, in a to a, a atomized individualistic society. But the way that happens, the way that uh, you know, we are all of us brothers really occurs is of course through bureaucracy, through <laughs> the state, through, um, you know, uh, the, the whole system of taxation, you know, that this sort of unavoidable, boring <laughs> aspect of, of political togetherness. Uh, and like being an adult, uh, yeah. right? Like it's like being yeah, an adult. Totally, you know? right. yeah, and and yeah. That, that's a lot of like from infinite jest on, I think in infinite jest, he seems to be very interested in, you know, what does it mean to be a good citizen? What does it mean to be, you know, a proper adult, you know, with Don Gately going forward. And you, and your book reflects that very much. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he had a kind of, um, you know, adult world, right, was his most, uh, I'm sure he was very pleased with that title, right, because it, it in being the name of a porn store. <laughs> yeah, I love <laughs> and, it. Yeah, and, and yet, you know, out of context, it reads as sort of what Wallace's fiction is trying to be about, the kind of world of adulthood and such, um, and that kind of, you know, dissonance between the two is, is what he was always writing about. Yeah. I mean, he obviously had a strong sense that the world, um, was infantilizing. Right. Um, and that, uh, he had been, uh, you know, it, that, that people, Americans, people in, in general had been kept, uh, children or, or childlike, uh, for, you know, um, too long a time by the, by the consumer culture. I mean, it's interesting, right. That, um, AO Scott, you know, was his kind of greatest, uh, I think one of his greatest, uh, popular reviewers in a sense, right. Where, um, he wrote that essay about, uh, the kind of really all the work up through, I think, brief interviews with hideous men. And he talked about that problem of kind of being of Wallace being against irony, but clearly being thoroughly an ironist, you know, not yeah. <laughs> really a sincere writer And Wallace and DT max. And I've, I've seen the, the line in the archive where, um, Wallace is writing, uh, I think it's good old neon. And he writes it in the margin of the page, AO Scott, saw into my character or something like that, you know, as in, uh, saw what I'm, what I'm about. And anyway, the, the reason I bring up A.O. Scott is because, you know, he's more recently, um, just in the past few years talked about, uh, some about the kind of, um, the, the perpetual childhood or perpetual adolescence of, of American culture, you know, a kind of end of adulthood, um, as a, as a sort of, uh, um, as something that the, you know, is available <laughs> in a way. And of course, Wallace is the great, um, he, he, I mean, that was one of his key theses, right. That, that we're all sort of children and, um, in some key ways. <laughs> well, how much, uh, specific time have you spent in the, the archive at, Ran at ransom? Um, 
I guess probably if I add it all up at at least like uh, three or four weeks, you know, I've kind of cut, taken a couple of, uh, you know, sort of week to 10 day trips there. And then there've been a, a few shorter times uh, uh, that I've been there, but I still feel like uh, there's uh, kind of, uh, you know, there's far more than, anybody can look at. And I, I, I definitely realized pretty early on, uh, in the process that, uh, you know, there's a kind of, um, that I was looking for, uh, you know, uh, rather than any sort of comprehensive view of sort of how he constructed his works or something like that. And, you know, something more like, uh, what, David Herring does in, in his uh, recent book that I was kind of looking for little nuggets that I could use to reinforce my mm-hmm. themes and such. Um, like he, I used this passage of his about uh, uh, that he wrote about pennies and how pennies are. Yeah. Nuts. And, uh, and he didn't put it into infinite jest, uh, but he, right. he was kind of prototype or a drafted passage for him that it was going to be another of the, of Hal's, um, essays right and it's a book that's that has a lot of uh uh essays in it you know that uh he kind of sneaks the sneaks in all these sorts of ideas by um um and histories of of economics and such by um having them sort of uh and and histories of um Right, the hero and 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 the and the uh, the hero of action and the hero of non-action and Steve McGarrett and and uh, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Hill Street Blues guy. Um, yeah, he was very fond of of that sort of writing. Anyway, yeah. Well, and you haven't talked much about like the idea of balance being outside of money, right? But in your book, you deal with that quite a bit, and you know, partly with the, the this is water speech. Um, and, and with other parts of his writing, like a little bit, talk about how, you know, this is, this book is really not just about finance and balancing, you know, a ledger so much as it is like a sort of, I don't know, spiritual ledger or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Like your claim on page 31 that Wallace like essentially can leads lead towards a culture wide redemption of value like that, the, the idea they use of axiology in terms of like uh, like economic worth also translates into kind of like a moral or existential worth. I think it's sort of what Matt's getting at there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, you know, one of the better ways to talk about that might be through the idea of the gift. Um, yes. Uh, that, yeah. it, <laughs> yes. Um, that Wallace uh, is, you know, always kind of thinking about the gifts and the, and the act of, of giving. And I sort of, um, you know, see it, and I, I think he saw it as a, as a kind of um, uh, the gift innately disturbs uh, our ideas of economics and possession and um, accumulation, right? I mean, it's, it's um, uh, the act of giving it, although this is this characterization of it uh, is problematic, and I'll get to that in a second. But, um, you know, it comes out of an impulse to uh, do the opposite of what 
capitalism um, wants you to do, which is uh, continually accumulate and always be thinking in that sort of calculated self-interest uh, way, or, or you know, that's the way we end up thinking under our um, wonderful capitalist system. Yeah, I um, you know, I quote I I quote quite a bit from Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, um, mm-hmm. which uh, is a way. I mean, it, it is a kind of spiritual thesis ultimately, but it gets to that kind of um, idea that the gift is redemptive by talking about how works of art are uh, essentially gifts. Um, And um, uh, it's, um, you know, he goes at that through the whole history of, of anthropology uh, in relation to the, the gift, but then has these kind of extended readings of uh, Walt Whitman and Ezra Pound putting that into action. And I end up, you know, sort of, I think Wallace blurbed that book uh, in glowing terms, right? Uh, when it came out in the 25th anniversary edition and he was kind of a well-known fan of, of it. Um, and I end up quoting a fair number of his annotations where, you know, um, who knows exactly when he wrote these things in the margins of the book, but he would, um, you know, write IJ and, and talk about, or kind of write notes to himself about infinite jests, um, in relation to the claims that, that Hyde was making. Now, I mean, the, the, the complications of the gift are that, um, uh, you is the gift impossible uh, is a question that essentially Derrida's writing on on the gift um, uh, really poses you know and it's related and and this is where you know Adam Kelly is is really the authority on this kind of complicatedness of the gift uh, because he says that essentially that looking at um, sincerity in the uh, as a as a as an impossibility that, you know, uh, the question of whether one can ever actually be sincere, um, is in parallel with this question, um, of whether one can ever actually give a gift or is actually, um, always kind of expecting a return. Um, and, and so I come down, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a complex issue. I am more on the side of thinking that Wallace, uh, overall, even though he, has lots of skepticism about uh, gift and uh, giving and and those who would claim to be generous. I mean, Leonard Stesick in The Pale King is said to be pathologically generous, which um, is is a kind of good summary of where he thought uh, this this stuff could go. Um, uh, So, um, but I think... um, well, where to where to go um, with that? I mean, I, I end up saying in the book that I think uh, I think Wallace was was sort of uh, somebody who wanted uh, wanted to believe uh, in the possibility of, of gift giving, and and it, again to go back to that biographical stratum that that Matt uh, pointed to earlier. You know, I I think there was um, we have. Uh, a fair amount of evidence that Wallace, um, you know, with his MacArthur genius grant, uh, and the entire kind of economy of AA, uh, as it worked, you know, the, the, the idea that 
of, of AA being a kind of network of, of favors or as it's put in an, an infinite jest, you're always paying it forward, right? You're not, uh, you, you give it up to get it back, to give it away, I think is right. The, the way AA uh, talks yeah. about it. That there was just this kind of sense, I think he had that that a gift sensibility or a a giving uh, frame of mind was a sort of necessary component to this uh, kind of framework of recovery that he wanted not only to follow, I think, or have you know characters in Infinite Jest, Gately, primary among them, have to. Um, just do it <laughs> in a sense with uh, the tenets of AA without questioning. Uh, but there's also, um, yeah. And it, so giving is, is a kind of life practice uh, that uh, alongside other, you know, kind of Christian um, or, or, maybe just um, the, the Christianity doesn't have to be the basis of it. I mean, there are lots of spiritual bases for being a giving sure. and generous person <laughs> that Wallace sort of explored, you know, in, yeah. in his work. Um, but that you have a there, specific chapter called Dei Grazia, which is the grace of God. Grace being. Yeah. Yeah. Gifts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, say more about that, I guess, because I don't want to kind of uh, just go on and on uh, recounting the book. <laughs> No, no, that's fine. Yeah, it's it's like a funny balance in interviews about uh, monographs. Like, we don't want to give too much of your thesis away because we want people to go buy your book and read it and enjoy it. But we <laughs> want to give right. them enough that, that they're like they're into like picking it up, you know. I, yeah, <laughs> if you cover I think so. Every topic, then it's like, why bother reading? <laughs> this is the the yeah the trouble with literary criticism uh, <laughs> is that you you do wonder. Why does anybody uh, sort of pick it up or or buy it? And but I, I hope there's a kind of audience, you know, a possible audience for this book. That's definitely the kind of uh, you know dedicated Wallace reader that is. Yeah. Um, in, you know, you have to, I think, to be a dedicated Wallace reader, be uh, interested in and conversant with what the academics, what the scholars are, are writing about. But there's a there, there's just a ton of there are so many ways into his uh, work that, and I hope the, the, the book kind of, you know, shows that there are, uh, are just covers a lot of, uh, a lot of possible ground, mm -hmm. uh, possible entryways, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But grace, totally. grace is a huge, I think, uh, idea that Wallace wanted to, to kind of, um, you know, edge his way toward in some way without being, um, uh, w without being the sorts of things that work against having a kind of grace filled life or sensibility, like a, a sort of arrogance or certainty about being graceful or having grace or right, being yeah. a recipient of some divine grace or something. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like, like that thing about virtues where like humility, for example, when you, when you say that you have it, you've instantly lost it. Yeah, I mean that's a very that's a very yeah. kind of Wallace esque formulation, <laughs> totally. right? Yeah. I mean sincerity like, oh, is kind of all about that. You know, yeah. then, uh, then you've lost it, I think. Yeah. You're you're actually pathologically generous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it made me think of this point in you know the David Lipsky book where Lipsky goes into his room 
when he's supposed to be leaving and he looks around oh, and yeah. one of the things he sees on the wall is a postcard which is the prayer of saint ignatius mm-hmm. yeah and it's about you know lord teach me to be generous to serve as you deserve to give and not to count the cost and you know sometimes this is called the prayer of generosity which you know it makes me think of uh richard powers has a book called generosity which i think kind of refers to wallace and in your book you deal with some other people who are kind of the heirs to Wallace and, you know, ethically and spiritually or fictionally. And so you talk about Teddy Wayne and some other people who might yeah. be heirs to Wallace. Like, can you walk Saunders, us, walk us through that people like you think who have picked up like the mantle of Wallace in the past, like 10 years or so? Yeah. Um, well, I write about Zadie Smith and, and Jonathan Lethem, uh, as uh, sort of fellow blurbers of, of Hyde's The Gift. Uh, that's how I kind of, one of the connections I make to Wallace. Uh, and I, I think, um, I think Leatham in, in, in a lot of ways is, has sort of uh, more thoroughly followed this kind of uh, Hyde logic of, of the gift and the work of art uh, as gift and, and really um, pursued it Tor, you know, in the direction of, um, you probably know his, uh, his essay, the ecstasy of influence, right. Uh, which is all right. plagiarized, uh, yeah. materials and, you know, a kind of very, uh, radical sense that there, when it comes to writing art and intellectual work, there is no property, you know, and there, and something like copyright is, is a sort of, um, uh, you know, needs to be, uh, rethought or, or overturned. And, and that was a kind of direct, you know, Wallace was more interested in, in a kind of, uh, uh, spiritual ethical dimension, I think of, of, um, the idea of, uh, of a kind of, uh, uh, of gifts or, or of commonwealth, but yeah, I, I write about Lethem and Chronic City, uh, which yeah, I, I was think very is, psyched is, to see that in there, Jeff. I, my first conference yeah. presentation in Illinois two years ago was about Chronic City and Infinite Jest. Um, one of my supervisors, Paul Milton, who you obviously are now acquainted with, I read. Yeah, I read Chronic City in his class that summer, and I instantly was okay. This is great. I wrote a paper about it for that class and then I adapted it into my conference talk. And so I haven't seen too many other people do that. Um, although I do see that you wrote that Stephen Byrne did in the uh, Infinite Jest Reader's Guide. He talked about Chronic City, but I never have actually had that book in my hands. So if I unintentionally plagiarize Stephen Byrne, uh, apologize, Steve. <laughs> I've had no access. Has, has, he been on the, has he been on the Great King Cat? Not yet, not yet. Oh, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. Not yet. But Lethem, you know, he um, he took Wallace's job. Right. Yeah, right. The, so, the, the Disney, Disney professor. Disney right? chair. And, like, you know, I was um, on a panel with him, 2015, Texas Book Festival. And he's very aware of, like, the fact that there were students who signed up for Wallace's classes and really never had Wallace as a professor. And by the time they were, you know, graduating, they finally had, um, you know, Lethem him as a professor. And so I, I think he's a really interesting heir 
Mm-hmm. Um, although I think, you know, the people who deal with the idea of the gift are a little more mature in the career, like their writing career. And, you know, Wallace didn't really come to that until later in life. Um, or at least not at the beginning of his career. So, I mean, that, that idea of him being early on, you, what do you map as like the turning point of his, of Wallace's career? Is it him going to, um, you know, in it house and infinite jest. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, such a big, that's a big Granada question. House? I mean, it, 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 it requires lots of answers. I mean, um, I mean, clearly sometime between, um, you know, 88 and, uh, and then the, the, the years of intense composition of infinite jest are, are where the, uh, of, you know, like 91, 92, when I guess is he in Syracuse in 91, 92 writing? That's, that's right. Yeah. That's Infinite right. Jess. Yeah. I mean, I think Westward, uh, as it, it, it you know, is, um, I, I'm, I, I feel like maybe I'm a bigger fan of Westward than maybe a lot of critics are. I don't want to say I'm the biggest fan ever or something, but I think there's, there's kind of, there's far more to that story um, than its kind of uh, relationship to Barth and the history of metafiction and finding, uh, you know, a new uh, set of topics for a younger generation to kind of take up uh, in, in fiction. I mean, I pose it as a, as a kind of um, way of a, a, a story in which he addresses himself to this kind of fascination with the depression uh, and finding a kind of uh, model of how, um, see if I can summarize this um, succinctly, um, finding a kind of model for artistic production that uh, kind of honors uh, the, the, sen- the, the, the kind of keener sense of value that uh, those of the depression era, uh, had, uh, in a way, you know, the, the kind of farmer who tries to pay for the car rental with grain Mm. (laughs) at the Avis counter when the young people, uh, DL and Mark can't pay with this credit card that they don't really have, right. Because it's not their credit. It's their parents' credit. I mean, that sort of financial juxtaposition, uh, is really kind of a powerful, uh, moment um, for I think, me. So I think, I I think really Boswell. Oh, I think answer, Boswell yeah. makes that you know, in understanding David Foster Wallace, he can, he mm. makes a similar argument about it being kind of a bridge between the yeah. early, early fiction and Infinite Jest, and I think there are a lot of similar themes that Wallace is aiming toward at infinite jest in westward and that's a big theme of westward in general is like aiming towards a target right and there's a target that he wants to hit which is you know very much about you know killing his postmodern you know forebears but it's also (laughs) a lot about him wanting to move beyond that and being very sincere so i i do think it doesn't work as a whole project, but I also think he, that is one of the keys of understanding of what he's trying to do in Infinite Jest is still in Westward. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, and it, you know, and another way of answering your question is to to kind of do the thought experiment of, um, you know, DT Max talks about him meeting that guy Big Craig uh, in yeah. his time at Granada House, and that he became the kind of uh, 
Gateway. Uh, right. Yeah. The model for Gately. And, you know, if you, I think, you know, obviously Infinite Jest is the, without Infinite Jest, Wallace is not Wallace. And we're maybe not having this conversation. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> or, very possible. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, it's Gately who, and the kind of character that Gately allowed him to, to write about, um, that, uh, you know, really, I think is, is a, is a key, uh, turning point. And, you know, what is that? I mean, it, it has to do with being, um, intuitive in a way that, uh, you know, and respecting a, a sort of un, uneducated, you know, not a, a kind of intuition, uh, about, deep philosophical questions that doesn't partake of philosophy, but, uh, you know, uh, and doesn't depend on having gone to Amherst or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I think of those conversations between like Joel and, and Gately about, you know, the, the phrasing of there, but for the grace of God, <laughs> yes. uh, or here, here, but for the grace of God and the kind of, you know, ways of approaching that and, and, and the way in which Gately, um, embodies, well, just this kind of sense that he wanted to get on the page, which is, uh, a sort of, you know, a, a kind of, uh, pragmatism and, uh, in, in multiple senses, I mean, a pragmatism, uh, maybe small, small P pragmatism, but also the kind of body of philosophical work that, you know, I, uh, people have written about him, uh, written about Wallace through like uh, David Evans's essay yes. in that in the, the companion choosing volume, right? Yeah, but, and and the, and and Wallace as kind of fan of William James and and such. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, sort of giving himself um, uh, maybe the freedom to uh, to write Gately that that is a real turning point. I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of a lot of this is present in Lenore, but she is, um, you know, she just doesn't have the kind of, um, literal and figurative stature of, uh, <laughs> of Kately, uh, in, in his work. Yeah. yeah um, I'm intrigued by a claim that you say that Don Gately is the character who makes infinite jest a masterpiece on page 88. That's a, that's like, I mean, when you read infinite jest, you kind of get the sense that Gately is, I mean, he's really kind of like the philosophical crux of the novel, right? In in terms of the themes that Wallace is is really driving at, um, and and what would Infinite Jest be without Gately and his particular storyline and, and human struggles, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a way of um, uh, of seeing Infinite Jest as um, you know, like if you think about something like the professional conversationalist scene, which <laughs> seems like uh, both based on our kind of archival evidence, you know, and uh, just one's own sense of things. I mean, it's the Wallace kind of of the broom of the system and era. You know, it's a younger Wallace, maybe a kind of late 80s Wallace writing that scene. And, uh, you know, what what partly makes infinite jests, uh, um, compelling, but also, you know, uh, makes it the baggy monster that it is, is that it's a writer, <laughs> you know, he, he kind of learned how to write infinite jest over the course of it. And, and Gately of course is, is just a, a far different, uh, character from, 
the kind of, you know, the dynamic of like himself and Hal is clearly a kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's about, it's, that's a a kind of relationship that it's all about adolescence and the adolescent mindset. And, you know, as you guys were saying earlier, right? Like, um, you need, uh, he, he, I think he found ways to, to sort of find, uh, uh, found ways to get a kind of adult ballast, uh, in there, um, and, and do, as he famously, you know, said, uh, do something sad right? <laughs> yeah, totally. as he wanted it to be. Um, well, and when you're 24, you know, or 22 and you read the book, um, you probably identify a lot with Hal, and yeah. it's different. I, at least for me, when you're yeah. you know post thirty three, thirty five, and you read it and identify with Gately, and mm-hmm. who's really struggling to be that what we were talking about earlier, like what does it mean to be a good citizen? What does it mean to be a good mm-hmm. adult? And decent human being. Yeah, and I think that's really where Wallace is at, and that he's struggling in that book with, you know, not only what it was like for him to be a child prodigy but for him to be uh, a sincere adult who that shit doesn't cut it anymore like (laughs) you still got to go to this like job what do you call Gately's jobs like his you know janitorial jobs like you have a good term for it in your book I I forget it's from the it's from the novel it's it's a humility job humility job yeah yeah (laughs) which uh, right yeah I mean that's it right we started out like 45 minutes ago or whatever talking about those you know what jobs and work uh, mean to Wallace and I think humility job is kind of the best uh, example of (laughs) that I mean I'm I'm pretty sure I mean he did uh, I'm pretty sure that's one of the aspects of AA that's embellished or if not made up I don't know maybe they do have people actually get humility jobs but um, he certainly kind of like you know analyzes the janitorial work and working with waste etc at a great great length various forms of waste as well um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's um, one one thing I love about the the DT Max book is that you know um, when he interviews Big Craig, he's like, "What was your impression of Wallace?" And it wasn't that he was some you know humble guy just looking for salvation. It was like, no, his impression was like he was a writer <laughs> looking for looking material. For material. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Material he could put in a book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the. Um, uh, right. The, this uh, Mary Carr has has certainly kind of uh, pursued that uh, thesis about infinite jest. I mean, she. I think it's in one of those. I think when when DT Max interviews her and uh, Mark, Mark Costello, Costello and a couple other people, yeah. uh, you can find it on YouTube. Right. It's like yeah, a New Yorker a mm-hmm. event. Yeah. And she says, "Oh, I'm you know," and, and I think she said it in in several contexts that uh, when I read you know, the early drafts of, of scenes from infinite jest, I was sort of scandalized, um, by the fact that he had taken people's stories. And, um, I, I, I want to claim in, in the, in my book, I try to work by the end of my chapter about infinite jest around to the idea that there is a kind of acknowledgement of this sense of, sh- uh, the sharedness, uh, of, 
of stories and the sharedness of language, I, I sort of suggest that there's a kind of uh, way of, of seeing AA uh, as, a, as a commonwealth of language and, and, and stories in the book and that, um, you know, his uh, acknowledgement on the copyright page of uh, not naming people, um, what it, you, you may know, the, uh, I can't, Call the act, recall the actual line, but right, he says um, something like, um, "The best thing I can, the uh, best thing I can do for these people is is not to name them or something." I think there's a kind of um, uh, an attempt to honor the anonymity within Alcoholics Anonymous uh, there, but also kind of extend a sort of like anonymous credit in a, uh, to right, the, yeah. those people that he, you know, from. Mary Carr's insider perspective, he was uh, uh, plagiarizing or, or <laughs> something like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it's, it's something for uh, to be kind of uh, figured out. Like, right. Like he I remember in 1996, you know, reading uh, reading the interviews that you know, came out, I think, uh, maybe one in Newsweek or, or somewhere, uh, where Wallace would say, well, you know, they have, as he says in the acknowledgement space, they have these open meetings, you can go and I would just go and, and listen. And of course, um, that the, the, the story of him being disingenuous to use that word again, uh, about his relationship to all that is, is part of that, uh, well, part of, uh, part of the story and, and, and indeed, you know, it, you know, I'm sure to big Craig, he was, he was seemed like the, um, the college kid or whatever, who was, who was, uh, you know, looking for material. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's cool. So, um, so Jeff, we've had a good talk about your book. Uh, we also want to mention that you have been selected as the keynote speaker of this year's ISU conference. Congratulations on that. Can you Thanks. give us kind of a, a brief, like a just a, like a, a teaser yeah. trailer of uh, what you might be leaning towards for for your keynote address there? Yeah, um, as Matt knows, because I I sort of asked him uh, where to go in the archive for things of this nature. I was I, I have been for a while interested in Wallace and silence and sound and music and a kind of sonic Wallace to sort of go along with all the interest in him as a as a visual writer. Um, and um, I thought for quite a while that that was going to be my uh, keynote topic, but I think instead uh, I'm gonna leave that for another day as a critic, I guess, and try to develop it, uh, in, 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 in some other ways. But, um, I think for the keynote, I'm going to be talking about Wallace and imminence, uh, the philosophy of imminence. Um, I think the working title of the paper is, uh, we've been inside what we wanted all along, uh, which is that line from the Kafka, uh, mm. humor essay. Um, and so it's really a kind of, um, uh, I really, it's an analysis that starts from uh, imminence uh, in this, and, and the, the best kind of definition of it is uh, provided in this is water, right? The, the water to the, the young fish uh, is an imminence because it is not seen as, as, as an environment or um, as a material medium through which they swim. And so they don't even recognize it. And I think Wallace was continually interested in, in evoking that, uh, state um, of of 
um, uh, a kind of spatial sense of interior uh, of interiors and exteriors being uh, something that was impossible to maintain. And so I end up talking, I, I will end up talking quite a bit in the, in the keynote about a lot of door uh, images. Um, oh, cool. Uh, especially, you know, Hal says uh, just as to, to complete my teaser here that you requested, <laughs> Hal says, uh, in the opening scene at Arizona, right, he says something about the exit sign. It, it kind of pops up. Yeah, right. Nothing. He says, you know, exit in Latin uh, would read to someone who knows Latin as he leaves. And I, I think that sense that uh, exits or entrances um, uh, or doors or gates, in the case of Gately, are not... Gately, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> You know, that these senses that we can divide inside from outside, uh, which is, a, of course, a big preoccupation of the room of the system, too, is always uh, a sort of illusion uh, uh, in his work. And so um, what that entails, too, is that um, there is no... It's also becomes a kind of model for uh, selfhood too. That there is no kind of door to uh, a kind of external point uh, on the self, and that that uh, kind of influences the way he uh, goes about constructing scenes, uh, images of of doors. Uh, the Suffering Channel has lots of. Uh, interesting images of the of doors in the the duplex uh that skip atwater goes to that the molt keys own but also um uh uh so there's lots of doors Im door imagery but it, it it uh ultimately it's uh it's about the kind of imminence of self language um the fact that languages are all-encompassing medium that as Wittgenstein taught us we cannot see uh, outside of and so I'll be talking about uh, all those sorts of things and I hope uh, cool. my teaser hasn't put anybody off the otherwise want to listen or something uh, it's 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 all it will all be more uh, uh, accurately and aptly put uh, in this talk itself I'm sure yeah, that's cool. funny because you know what Jeff I associate it with a lot of imminent stuff with my one of my other favorite authors is is John Updike who mm. who identified his own sort of personal project in his all writing as to give the mundane its beautiful due and oh, yeah. and that that's pretty much like the definition of imminence to me and mm. I, I think there's a lot of you know Marshall Boswell deals with a little bit with this and I'm really interested in this idea of um, exiting, unfortunately, because Wallace did exit. Uh, and, you know, and I, I, I can't wait to hear more about it and, and um, read more about it. Um, Dave, do you have any final thoughts on, on this well, idea of imminence? Well, yeah, I was going to offer or, or query as to whether you plan to, to cite any Radiohead in this talk about doors because Radiohead has like a quite an interesting like thematic uh, resonance with, with doors. Particularly, I'm thinking of a song on the album Amnesia called Pulk Pull Revolving Doors. And there's just like someone talking about doors and different kinds of doors. <laughs> so maybe you can get like an, an, see, epi see, I, an epigraph or something from that. I, I, need, I obviously need to... Uh, 
read more, listen to more Radiohead. Um, I yeah, was it's like say eating I, your vegetables, like Matt said a couple episodes ago. What's the name Listening of this band? Radio. I'm sorry, the name of the band? <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> okay, Taylor. let me write that down. Uh, it sounds great. Yeah. Aren't they, uh, <laughs> don't they have a Crying of Lot 49 <laughs> reference? I always thought of them as like Pinchonians by oh, nature. So Pinchonian. yeah. By the way, I have to uh, say, so for everyone else who is tuning in um, to hear Jeff Seavers as a Wallace scholar. I have to say he is one of the preeminent Pinchonian <laughs> scholars of our time. And there are people who yeah. will listen to this who know nothing about Wallace, but they know the name Jeff Seavers related to Thomas Pinchon. So Yeah, because uh, Jeff, you have like a, a the, book on Against the Day, right? I edited a collection of essays with uh, with my friend uh, Christopher Lease, uh, yeah, in 2011, I guess, um, on Against the Day, yeah. I still haven't uh, read that, but it's been on my bookshelf for probably like nine years, and I'm just kind of looking at it, like eyeing it once in a while, being like, I don't know, man. Well, <laughs> you're one of the you're one of the few Wallace scholars who's actually like written a lot about Pinchon, and, and you know, even though there, that connection's there. Not a lot of writing has been done connecting the two. Yeah, there, there. I think there is a lot there. I mean, Brian McHale's essay about the Pale King, uh, called the Pale King or the White Visitation, is really the a key right. place to go, right? Because he sort of, I mean, I I love the passage in that where he uh, lays out, you know, the way in which Wallace kind of mimicked so many sentences from Gravity's Rainbow, even when he wasn't making kind of exact. Uh, uh, you know, illusions like uh, to to gravity's rainbow. Yeah, and I mean, it's so interesting too because because Wallace denied uh, a Pynchon influence right. or a Pynchon influence okay. in so so many ways. You know, claiming that he didn't know anything about the crying of Lot Forty Nine or read it after he wrote the Broom of the System. I mean, there's right, definitely yeah. a kind of uh, anxiety of influence uh, <laughs> there. Um, and, and Brian's essay really, you know, tackles that very subject of kind of avoiding um, certain influences while, you know, writing at great length about John Barth and explicit terms and all that. So, right. um, yeah. And speaking yeah. of Brian McHale, like congratulations on getting his endorsement on the back of your book jacket. That's pretty solid. Well, I, I think Brian uh, hung the moon for critics. <laughs> yeah, so well, exactly. Uh, such a, he's a big, he's a huge deal. Yeah, definitely exciting to uh, to get that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and then Lee Constantino as well is on the back, who was our previous episode guest. So all the dots. Yeah, I listened to that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Heather Hauser as well. We haven't had her on yet, but we'd like to she, love to talk to her in the future. She's a friend of the pod. She's a friend of the pod. <laughs> the pod. <laughs> the podcast or just the pod of people that we know. Any last <laughs> thoughts, Jeff? Uh, <laughs> Matt's like, let's cut this uh, off. Uh, it's getting over, over long here or something okay. like that. Uh, just thank you guys uh, for doing this one and, and for, for doing this podcast. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great um, institution for the oh. uh, Wallace community and, uh, you know, uh, goes along with uh, the conference and, and, and Matt, you, you know, you haven't, oh. you didn't mention here, you're the society and everything, but I'm oh. sure you'll cover that at greater length at some other time. So yeah, thank, I don't know. thanks to you guys. Uh, it's a, it's a labor of love for us. And yeah. I mean, we truly just, you know, we could do this, for hours and hours upon hours so uh and we will and Illinois, we will June. so i encourage everyone who's listening 
come to Bloomington in the yes. first weekend of June or whatever it is and come yeah, to the conference. Eighth, eighth and yeah, ninth, yeah. I think. Yeah, come to the conference and we'll do this in person. We're going to have a live episode there. We um, are. And, oh, awesome. And it's going to be awesome. And we're going to have a lot of different people on the show. Um, I think there are 100 people already registered for the conference. So it's it's going to be a good turnout for your keynote, Jeff. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope I do a better job of uh, giving it than I did of summarizing it uh, in what? a teaser as Dave requested. So. What? Well, you've hardly, you've hardly <laughs> even, uh, yeah, what? Is what? That, <laughs> is that possible? You, but you might not even have written this paper yet, I suppose. It's still quite a few months. I haven't written mine either, so. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, night no, before, no, man. No, yeah. no it's good. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to. No one ever wants to really know how the sausage is made. So yeah. let's keep it all to ourselves, yeah. right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so Dan, Dan Keys, my uh, my supervisor, who you know Jeff was, you know, pretty like uh-huh. in a really good way on my case about getting my thesis done because I was. I think I took two extra semesters, that longer than I <laughs> needed to to finish it, but. Like, I just need, like, insane amounts of pressure to get any kind of academic writing done. So, uh, I don't know. I have seen that happen before with uh, (laughs) MA and PhD students. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he was cracking the whip, which I appreciated. (laughs) I needed that. That's the only way I can can perform. (laughs) (laughs) Extreme duress, you know. Well, um, thanks for sharing your book with us today, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, thanks um, for your book. Thanks for unpacking it, some of it with us. It's a great read. Um, One thing that I loved about being a student uh, was that I could, anytime one of these books on Wallace came out, I would look at the price tag and be like, oh, I'd love to own this book, but it's quite expensive, isn't it? So (laughs) I would just send an email to Dan Keyes, my supervisor, and be like, hey, is it possible we can, the library can bring this in? I'd like to use it. And and a week or two later, it was in the library, and then I had unfettered access to it for like two years. So if you're a student listening to this podcast and you want to get your hands on some of these monographs, but the price tags are perhaps a little high for your budget, uh, get them, get your school to order them in, and and you'll have access to them. That's my my uh, studently advice. <laughs> and for those who have 35 35- U.S. dollars uh, lying around, they can uh, they can buy it too, you know. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's not laughs> <bad> Definitely <laughs> awesome, uh, Jeff. I want uh, one last uh, final funny thing to leave with you. So at my defense, you uh, we had like a two hour sort of roundtable discussion about about my thesis, and in the audience were my parents and my wife Rachel and my sister and, and a couple other friends. And after my mom, when we went out to the hall for the deliberation period. My mom was just raving about how how highly she thought of you. She thought you were just so lovely, and she just went on about like how Jeff was just like so interesting and and just such a nice part of the defense process. So um, Ellie Ellie thanks you for your contributions to my my master's degree work. Well, thank you, Mrs. <laughs> Speaks <Blair>. very highly. <laughs> yeah, the. Um, yeah, I, uh, that that's gratifying to hear, and yes. uh, you, you did a you did a good job yourself, Dave. So uh, I, ho- I hope she she told you that as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, she started with that, and then good, good directly to Jeff Sievers. <laughs> well, and if we have any listeners out there who are looking for grad school, I recommend they just go straight to Can- uh, Canada. Just, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing okay. Well, especially now, right? Yeah, apparently. Uh, uh, 
the UBC website got a lot of hits on the night of uh, November 8th, uh, from what I heard. So, <laughs> Oh, interesting, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, you've probably never been more excited to be outside of the U.S. Uh, in your last eight years living in Canada than in the last couple months, eh? Hey? And that's a wrap. Canada <laughs> <laughs> welcomes no. you and your family. <laughs> right. No. Uh, well... I have uh, plenty of love for the home country, as I uh, will continue to think of it. I'm just a visitor here in so many ways. So it's just a, it's just you know a brief interlude, and it will be over um, before you know it. I I remember in that Believer interview of 2004, and Wallace talks about you know when George W. is running for reelection, he's saying, "Oh, I'm going to you know knock on doors and wear a yes. button and all right. all of this political action." And I remember just the feeling, just crushing defeat feeling in November of 2004. Mm. And, you know, I took great solace in being on the Wallace email list at the time. Mm. And we there was a lot of commiseration from Americans and Canadians um, who really gave me comfort in those days of feeling like, you know what, we're going to build up a resistance. We're going to keep struggling and keep fighting and um I, you know, I have a little bit of that now, but much, much worse. I'm still not over it. I, I really don't have any no. kind of consolation for anyone else out there. I'm like, just yeah. keep like crying into your pillow at night. Like, I, <laughs> I think we'll get some pretty good like punk rock coming out of this next year, though. But I don't you know, care about punk rock, Dave. I'm not a punk rock guy. <laughs> yeah, we've established that, man. <laughs> I'm like. That music and movies are music and movies are lower on your uh, priority could you, list. <laughs> could you repeat the name of that band you mentioned earlier? Radio? <laughs> Three Doors that, Down. Uh, who was it? The, was it the Steve Miller band? The third, the third Eye Blind. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty rad stuff. And speaking of uh, of films, we uh, it's Oscar night tonight, so we've kind of uh, opted opted out of that to do this instead. Uh, who are, who are your picks, Jeff? For uh, for top film of the oh, year yeah, last year right. any favorites well, for you? I, I would I really hope Moonlight yeah wins. it's I, so I good sense that I just uh, watched that La this La week Land is seems to be the favorite I haven't yeah. seen La La Land I haven't either uh, so I don't I do musicals really, man yeah can't hack but um <laughs> I just think Moonlight is you know so brilliant aesthetically and yes, um and is. important politically that I can't imagine some you know hymn to Hollywood musicals or something could, yeah have that kind of impact so mm-hmm. i don't know and mm-hmm. uh, and uh yeah it moonlight all the way and i hope denzel yeah. washington wins but uh, oh i haven't maybe. seen fences yet but i've heard it's yeah very i think good. that's a great yeah. performance yeah have you seen manchester by the sea i have yeah mm-hmm. uh and uh definitely you know uh definitely enjoyed it but yeah. uh moonlight takes it for it's you. the best picture and, <laughs> and obviously casey affleck uh yeah it's a good Good performance, but mm-hmm. uh, anyway, you don't. I, I don't have anything actually more profound to say than yeah, good <laughs> performance. So, <laughs> oh, and I hope you're editing this part out. No way, <laughs> this is going in. All, all I've seen is Zootopia and um, <laughs> Finding Dory. So, uh, please tell me Finding Dory is not up there because I thought I was fucking awful. <laughs> I thought you were going to say awesome, and that would have been. 
e- uh, equally act- hilarious. Act- actually, no. I liked um, Penguins of Madagascar. Much oh, that's better. right. Um, yeah. I'm going to come to Austin and take you yeah. for a day at the uh, Eagle ne- Cinema. I need it. Like that. Yeah. You have my permission, please. All right. I will, I will get my butt it. down there and I'll, I'll go to the Ransom Center and take you to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jeff, man. Thanks really again, Jeff. It. Yeah, it's been great yeah, talking. I really appreciate you guys uh, and um, look forward to, to hearing it. Yeah, and we'll see you in June. All right. All right. Cool. So do you have your um, your intro thing ready, like what we talked about? Like I do. The, I, 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 was, I yeah. think I'm going to go with, I'm Jeff Sievers, and in Canada we call it the Great Convexity here in the Great Concavity. <laughs> Fuck you, man. It's the concavity. <laughs> no. uh, we could, we could <laughs> stage it. that no, whole dialogue great. or something, right? Yeah. <laughs>